some people turn out a certain way because of their father, and other people turn out a certain way in spite of their father. And I think in your situation, you've turned out the way you have in spite of your biological father. You are listening to episode one of Complicated Fatherhood, an eight episode podcast docuseries exploring how my own journey through fatherhood has been affected by the father that I never knew. I'm your host, Ryan Rucker. And at the end of the episode, if you like what you hear, I would love for you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Join us for the conversation over on Instagram at Complicated Fatherhood, where we can discuss each episode. I can answer all of your questions or you can just stop by and say hi. Regardless, I am honored that you chose to be here. So truly, thank you. All right, let's get into it. I once heard Hasan Minaj refer to watching his daughter grow up by saying, I just have Spike Lee tickets to her life. Now, even in doing research, looking for the right words and the right quotes about fatherhood to kick off this podcast, words of beauty that are both timeless and poetic, ultimately, I kept coming back to this one quote from Hasan Minaj. I just have Spike Lee tickets to her life. Now, inevitably, that reference doesn't work for everyone, so let me break it down what that means. Spike Lee, director, producer, writer, you name it. As great as his resume is, Spike is largely known as the man in the front row at Madison Square Garden, watching his beloved New York Knicks year after year for the last 30 years. He's been there for the biggest moments, at times maybe getting a little too involved. Shout out to my guy, Reggie Miller. But no matter what, you know Spike Lee will be there, night in and night out, with the best seats in the house, taking it all in. To me, that's fatherhood. Parenthood, really. You're right there for everything. The birth, the first words, the accidents, the tumbles, the accomplishments, the heartbreaks, you name it. You forever have the best seats in the house for the most beautiful show. As a dad, I can't picture a life that doesn't involve helping my girls ride scooters or calming them down after a bad dream. I take immense joy in family walks, swinging on a tree in our front yard, chasing down the ice cream truck once we hear that music. I anticipate watching my girls grow, becoming who they're called to be, as my wife and I cheer them on every step of the way during their own journey. To me, Fatherhood is the greatest gift I have ever received, which is in part why I'm forever confused when I hear of some men who opt out of that gift. Now, according to the National Fatherhood Initiative, who pulled these figures from the 2017 U.S. Census Bureau, there are 19.7 million children in America alone who are living without a father in the home. That's one in four children. Their research also shows that in father-absent homes, children are four times more likely to live in poverty than those in two-parent households. They're more likely to face abuse and neglect, more likely to go to prison, more likely to drop out of high school. The list goes on and on. If there is any statistic that shows that kids, 
are better off without two present parents in the home? I didn't find it. President George W. Bush worked with the National Fatherhood Initiative to promote fatherhood. President Barack Obama created the President's Fatherhood and Mentoring Initiative to promote fatherhood. Across the board, fatherlessness is recognized as a crisis, one with generational and lasting effects. It's not like these patterns are easily broken. The trauma that comes along with being left by a father lasts a lifetime, and that trauma will likely show up in their own parenting decades down the line, creating a never-ending cycle of hurt and pain that takes intentional, deep work to even learn how to deal with. I know because I'm dealing with mine now. In August of 2019, both of my paternal grandparents passed away. I was incredibly close with them, and while I was fortunate to have relationships with them into my 30s, I was still heartbroken. Between their passings and their memorial service a few months later, our family shared stories about them, uh, many of which I'd heard my grandpa tell me over and over again over the years. But I enjoyed understanding the generational lineage that led me to my girls. We flew from California to my hometown in upstate New York for their service. And when we walked into the Dockstader restaurant on Glen Lake for the memorial service after party, if you will, again, we were bombarded with story after story from people who knew my grandparents. I couldn't get over how important these stories would become to me. One woman came up to me and even mentioned that when she was a kid, she was hired by my great grandmother at her restaurant and she shared stories of their time together too. For hours, we stayed at the Dockstader, taking family pictures in front of the lake that my mom used to jet ski on, chasing my daughter on the patio where my grandparents celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary, laughing in the lounge where my great-grandmother used to hang out. That night, Reagan, my oldest daughter, earned her first dollar by following around a waitress all night, assisting her from table to table while setting and cleaning them up fifth generation of our family creating memories at the same location that the rest of us had made our own. The night was truly beyond special. The trip back to my hometown was beautiful in many regards, and while I loved having all these family stories I could pass down to my girls, it hit me that there was an entire side of their family that I wouldn't be able to share stories about, mainly because I didn't know any. I was two when my father left. And while I had a large family on that side, I didn't know any of them. Where did they live? Where were they from? As close as I was with my maternal grandparents, it was strange to me that I knew next to nothing about my paternal grandparents. I mean, they had stories too, right? Not to mention, my mother is white and my father is black. So I am a black man living in America and I know next to nothing about the struggles that the black side of my family has faced. I adore the family I know, and within my family, I never felt out of place. And while my mom always did a great job of connecting me to black culture, I never had that connection with my black father because, well, he wasn't around. Now, as a father of two girls, studying the effects of multi-generational families, living in the midst of social unrest, personally overcoming negative stereotypes about black dads, all while processing my own father's absence, for me, well, fatherhood has become complicated. Not only am I learning how to be a dad, but I'm learning about the history that made me the dad I am today. This history goes deeper than my childhood. It goes deeper than my father's childhood. 
See, I was born in Glens Falls, New York, and I always assumed that my father's geographical ties were to Albany, New York. What I didn't know is that my father's ties can be traced back to Shibuda, Mississippi, where a man named Louis Parson was from. Louis Parson and his wife Frances left Shibuda, Mississippi, landing in Albany, New York in 1927. But it wasn't a job that took him to Albany. Escaping the Jim Crow South is what motivated this move. Being black in Shibuda could get you killed. Parson knew this. The town knew this. I mean, a quick Google search will show you that Shibuda's most famous landmark is what's known as the Hanging Bridge, a bridge that, while closed off to the public, still stands today. In 1918, two brothers, Major and Andrew Clark, and two sisters, Alma and Maggie House, both of whom were pregnant at the time, were falsely accused of murdering the landowner of the farm where all four were employed as laborers. The four were initially taken to jail but after a white mom stormed the jail, they kidnapped all four, forcibly brought them to a bridge over the Chickasaw Way River, tied nooses around each of their necks, and one by one threw each of them to their death. As their families tried to recover their lifeless hanging bodies, they were prevented from doing so. As the white mob wanted their bodies to be an example to the other black people in the town. Members of the community reported seeing the baby inside Alma's body moving while she hung lifeless from that bridge. She was dazed from giving birth when she was killed. The NAACP called on the governor of Mississippi to review these killings along with countless lynchings that had occurred throughout the South around that time. The governor responded, by telling the NAACP to, and I quote, go to hell. That was life in the Jim Crow South. A few years later, not only did Lewis and Francis Parson escape Shibuda, but Parson made frequent trips back to the South to help family and friends escape as well. Parson purchased a parcel of land in Albany and dozens of black Southerners would settle on this land. One of the people he helped move to Albany was his young niece, Orlean, who grew up to marry a man named Winfred. Together, they had nine children, the eighth of whom was my father. Okay, I am Maurice Ennis Rucker. I am 62 years old. And I am a six foot four, 270 pound black man. Uh, I play in a band. I make art. Um, I work at the Albany County Probation Department as the employment specialist. And it is currently, there's currently four inches of snow outside my door where i like to feed the birds i i I used to just feed them bird seed but i've recently discovered suet so i have a couple little suet cages and i get all different kinds of colorful birds it's kind of cool right on 
Right on. And obviously, currently in, in Albany, and you know, today I would love to you know, just really talk about your childhood. So currently in Albany, but where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up mostly on at 1519 First Street, Rensselaer, New York. Okay. Uh, periodically, my father will pack up the family. Sometimes he would just pack up just the boys. And there were like, at this time, five boys at home. And he would pack us up and move out to Phoenix, Arizona. Okay. And do something there. And then when that would fall apart, he'd move back to Rensselaer. And, and the house was owned by my grandparents, who lived in 1556. So he always had some place to come back to. Like when we weren't at 1519 First Street, the house just sat empty. So, oh, interesting. And that was my my beginning. That started like in the 60s, I guess. Early 60s, 61 maybe. Okay. And, uh, and the street that I lived on in Rensselaer was First Street. And it's, it was sort of like a mixed community, you know, white and black. Mm-hmm. And then there was this, this old guy who lived next to us named, named Otto, this old white guy, okay, German guy. And my brother Garland has recently said to me, he thinks that Otto was hiding out from war crimes like he was a Nazi. And he just like moved into this predominantly black community and just kept his head down. I was like, really? He said, yeah, that's all right. And the more and more I think about it, I'm like, why else? On one side of us was Otto, and on the other side of us was Miss Kerr, who was this Native American woman who, like, when I was a kid, I think she was, like, 90 years old. And apparently she had a son, but she would she would periodically babysit me. And one time she was ba- babysitting me, and I started playing with fire, and I kind of burnt the house down. What, and, wait, you know, I was like... Kind of burnt the house down? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was weird. I was like... We had like one of those heaters that, you know, you had, I don't know if you've ever seen them, but they had flames in the front of them. Okay. And I was running a line of lighter fluid from the heater to, I don't know what, I was just like making lines of fire that I thought was kind of cool on the floor. And it caught on to one of my sister's dresses in the closet. And they had to rush us out of the house, and and we had to move someplace for a little while. And yeah, that was that was one of my um, my tragedies in my life. Okay. Uh, when I started the house on fire, I but I uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. everyone was uh, so, okay out of that but um i know you had mentioned the whole phoenix thing you know and that was something i'd love to ask more about because obviously you know albany new york and phoenix arizona are not that close so what what brought your dad out to phoenix arizona well here's the deal this this goes back to from what i what i understand and like i said i just put a document in the mail 
that'll give you more detail on this that you should get probably Tuesday or Wednesday. Okay. But um, but apparently, from the best I can put together, my my father and his father was an older guy, and his mother was a prostitute, okay. and. So when he was born, like after he was born, I don't know, like a year or whatever, she left. And so my father was being raised by his father. And then he got remarried okay. to this woman. This is the best I understand it. I, you know, this may not be completely accurate. Yeah. And he got, his father got married to this woman and then his father died. And then his, his stepmother got married. So he was living with a stepmother and a stepbrother, or a stepmother and a stepfather. Okay. And he had a brother. I think he was an older brother. And I'm not sure if his, his brother Garland, he had a brother Garland, and uh, who ended up changing his last name. So I'm not sure if... His brother Garland was from his stepmother's previous marriage or what? Okay. Because I don't remember them saying when he was, or or if his brother Garland was his father and his stepmother's child. I'm not really sure. Okay. But anyway, apparently when they were like, he was like 11 or so or 12, he ran away and was riding the rails and, you know, just going from place to place on the train. Similar, similar to me. Okay. And uh, he uh, ended up, I think, in Winslow, Arizona. And like I said, the, the, the name of the woman is in that document. Um, but she ended up raising him for a few years and I think that was his attraction to Arizona. Gotcha. That's the best I can understand. Like he ended up, he ended up being like, like I think the first black trolley car driver in Albany. But he met my mother when I think her, my mother was in Ohio for some sort of religious conference or something, okay. and she was on the bus. And my my father or my my mother um, left her purse on the bus, okay. and my father took it home. And then later on, my mother called the bus company and said, "You know, I lost my." Said, "Yeah, yeah, he took it home." So, like, apparently, <laughs> for some reason, my mother went over to this man's house to get her purse. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. You know, they ended up, she ended up coming back to Albany. I think he ended up following her, her back to Albany. Okay. And they got married in Albany. Had a, their, um, their honeymoon was walking down Green Street, married for the first time. They called that their honeymoon. Okay. And that's how, they, that's how that all got started. Fascinating. Uh, that's okay. yeah. That's how I think. That's what I think the Phoenix connection came from. Okay, um, interesting. Yeah, I, I, I'm always I'm always uh, 
you know, just interested in terms of how people get to, you know, their locations. And obviously, you know, Phoenix yeah. and you don't have much, much in common, you know, so right. interesting right. to hear how that came about. And, you know, we've obviously talked about, you know, your, your dad a little bit, but, you know, what were your parents like? What, what was your mom like? My mother grew up, uh, she was a parson. And Parsons were like, uh, like a big Pentecostal Kojic Church of Church of God in Christ. Okay. So they were like really Kojic people, and from down south who who moved up. Shit, I forgot her uncle's name. Once again, it's in the document. I need to read it again. Okay. But um. She had a, um, an uncle who bought some road, some land out in, um, shoot, I should have sent you a copy of that. I got a copy of the deed, them turning the deed over to him for like $1. This area outside of Albany, which is now known as Rapp Road, R-A-P-P Road. Okay. And, uh. He would have, he had a little storefront church down in downtown Albany. And he would periodically go back to go down south, pick up people who he knew, and would pack them up and bring them to the Albany area. Okay. And some of them would buy like a piece of that land and build their house and that's where they would live and that's how he built he built his congregation i remember my grandmother came really kind of big in the church she was a district missionary and one time they were doing a testimonial and i remember like all the old sisters in the church like you know saying yeah i remember Riding up in the car to Albany with Sister Luella, that was my grandmother, or I remember riding in in the car up to Albany, you know, just them talking about traveling from down south in this car that was driven by my mother's uncle. Okay. And building a community out of Rap Road. Rap Road is a, a community that is primarily in a white area but it's all like pretty much owned by black people. Their houses are on that particular road because my uncle got it started or my my, my grandmother's brother got it started. Okay. So, and we grew up in the church, you know, so every Sunday we had to go to church. Thursday was, Thursday night was junior choir rehearsal. Saturday afternoon was adult choir rehearsal. Um, I forgot. Friday night was junior church. Yeah, Thursday night was rehearsal. Friday night was junior church. And uh, that's that was our life. We we went to church. You know, we uh, okay. remember one time we were having a. Uh, after after school, there was like religious instruction, like once a quarter or something like this, where we got out of school a little early and we'd go next door to the Presbyterian church. And uh, this nun would tell us Bible stories. 
Mm-hmm. And I was always bored because I knew them all. I yeah. knew all of the Bible stories from like, you know, having kid Bibles around the house and going to church and sitting in Sunday school. I used to love to go into Sunday school because my Sunday school teacher was really hot. She was Valerie Jeffries. I thought she was the hottest woman in the world. I was like this little kid. No, like she actually, she actually ended up becoming the first lady of the church. Like her husband ended up when Bishop Wilburn, who was the pastor when I was a kid, and he was, you know, he'd been pastor for like, you know, a bunch of years. When he passed away, uh, Elder Jeffries became the pastor. So Dolly Jeffries went from a Sunday school teacher to the first lady, but that happened after I was like not going to church anymore. Gotcha. So, but yeah, we used to go to church, uh, and a lot of times we would just go to Sunday school and then sneak out of the church when it, when because Sunday school was downstairs and the service was upstairs. So go downstairs and sneak out the door and go up the hill to the museum. Okay. We used to hang out in the museum and like, you know, just go, you know, or hang out in the park across from the museum or go up the street to the, uh, I think it's called the, Natural History Museum, which was like a block away. We used to call it the Mummy Museum because it was a museum that had two mummies. They still got the mummies. We could check out the mummies. And this was all before they, I don't know if you know anything about Albany, but um, I guess in the 60s and the 70s, they took over a big section of downtown Albany by eminent domain and displaced a a ton of people in the neighborhood to build the Empire State Plaza. That's the Nelson B. Rockefeller Empire State Plaza. But our church is like right next to it. It's like they took property up to the road right across the street from our church. There's a giant wall next to our church. It looks like, you know, something Trump might have built. And uh, the Empire State Plaza is to the, you know, if you're facing our church, to the right of it. So all of that stuff wasn't there when I was a kid. Interesting. And and how many how many kids were there? How many siblings do you have? There's a total of nine of us. Okay. But the first two, my oldest brother Wimpy, who would who has probably I, I, I wrote in a note to you, eighteen to twenty five kids. Whoa. So he's one of the reasons why why you have so many cousins and cousins' kids and cousins. Like, he was having kids before I was born. Okay. Like, if he if he were alive today, he'd probably be 90. Okay. I think he was, like, 30 years older than me. Okay. But, oh, yeah, I remember he was, like, he was my father's son from a previous marriage. And he was just, I remember this, he was just 12 years younger than my mother. Is that oh. right? 
Okay. Like when my mother, my when my mother was in her twenties, he was like a young teen or something like that. Gotcha. And then under him, under him was Johnny, and Johnny was uh, sort of like a phenom. He was my mother's child from a previous marriage or a previous oh. relationship, although she was married before. But um, but Johnny was, uh, I'm going to run down and tell you a little bit about each one of my brothers and sisters. Okay. Is that okay? okay? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. Johnny was... When he was uh, a kid, he was riding a sled down Tracy Street Hill, the steep hill, and got hit by a truck, like a tractor trailer truck. And his legs were both broken. The doctor said he'll probably never walk again. And Johnny went on to high school to become like a leading basketball player at the high school. I think, I can't remember what college he went to. St. John's sounds right. But anyway, after college, he uh, played pro basketball in France for like, you know, five years or you know, maybe longer. I'm not really sure. I think it was five years. And then uh, he just, you know, he came back, he worked, he invested. He uh, he was raised actually by my grandparents. Johnny wasn't raised with the rest of us. He was raised. We were all raised at fifteen nineteen First Street. He lived at fifteen fifty six First Street. And he told me one time. He says, "You know, when grandparents bought fifteen fifty six First Street, they said to me, Johnny, we're buying this house for you." Okay. And when they passed on. He ended up getting their house and living there. But his thing was, he traveled. Johnny is the only person that I know who's been on all seven continents. Okay. He wow. just he he just travels. He'll like every winter go someplace and stay there for the winter. You know, rent an apartment as opposed to staying in a hotel. Yeah. And he would he would ride on cruise ships. And one year he learned how to ballroom dance. So they would let him ride on the cruise ships for free. And he would just dance with single women. That That's all he did. Or people who needed a dance partner. That was Johnny's job on the, uh, on the ship. He did that like in his later years when he was like in his sixties. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was just, Sort of an interesting guy. He passed away last year. Um, and then, yeah, sorry to hear that. Then next to him is Marsha. Marsha is, is our, the first of the, the Rutgers that were had by my, my mother and father. Okay. Um, and Marsha. Marsha had her first baby, I think, when she was 16. Okay. And Robert Chandler. And Robert Chandler taught me how to ride a bicycle. So I always loved that for him. He's kind of a sketchy guy. When we first moved to Troy, 
he wasn't there because he was in reform school. Then okay. he got out of reform school, and that's when we met him. And my sister Marcia started dating him. Okay. But Marcia said to me one time, she said, Maurice, by the time I was 23, I had all five of my boys. Oh, wow. So, yeah, there's five boys, five Chandlers, and Robert has two other boys from other relationships. So there's seven of those boys from Robert Chandler. He was like okay. pumping out boys like, like nobody's business. But Marsha, what can I say about Marsha? Marsha kind of on those trips to Arizona, sometimes my mother wouldn't go. Mm -hmm. So Marsha was the one that would take care of us, like get us registered for school. And, and you know, and she was just, you know, 14, 15 years old. She would like do all of that stuff, like take care of the boys while my father was out trying to like do whatever current hustle he was doing. And I don't mean like hustling on the street. He was like, you know, one time he had a, a, a pig farm. Another time he had a, a record store. Another time he had, you know, he was a... a drove a garbage truck, oh, wow. drove an ambulance. He just, you know, he kind of, you know, once again, it was like one of those things that I see in me. He just like got uncomfortable with stuff and just was like, no, nah, I want to do something else. So, but that's Marsha. Okay. Then there's Bill. Bill was sort of like the boss of the boys. Bill was the one who's like, when we were like in Arizona one time, there's a story about we were walking someplace along the railroad track and Ronnie Ronnie told me a story. He said, Ronnie, he says, I, I I had these nice shoes that I liked and I took care of and I yeah, you know, I shined them up and I made sure that they were like nice and we were walking someplace. He said, And the baby, you didn't have any shoes on. And Bill like Give the baby your shoes. He says, I was so mad at you. <laughs> he says, you drove me crazy, but he said, yeah, he had to give me his shoes so I could walk home, right? Because I guess the ground was hot or something. Yeah. I don't remember it happening, but uh, this is what, what he told me. So <laughs> anyway, so Bill, Bill was like the outgoing, gregarious kind of guy. Then he became a drunk and start one of these guys that always worked always had a hustle on was always making money but he was always drinking johnny walker black mm -hmm. you know like if we were outside in the park drinking he'd open the bottle throw away the cap because he's like i'm gonna finish this here i'm gonna you know and he was loud and obnoxious and people just like it got to the point where he thought he was being funny. He was just being a pain in the ass. And then something happened that changed his life. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, he found God again. And now Bill, for the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years, has been the pastor of his own church. Oh, wow. He's like, he turned it around. He like still, he's all, he, he like, he would get drunk and crash up cars. So at one point they took his jar, it just started snowing again. 
they took away his driver's license for, I don't know if for life, but to this day, he doesn't really drive. And he, you know, he's been working at the same steel mill for about 30 years. He worked at another one before that. That's all he's done since he's gotten out of high school was working steel mills. His, his nickname is Steel Man. Okay. Or it was Steel Right here comes Steel Man. Yeah. Now it's now it's Reverend now it's Reverend Rucker. So that's Bill. He's married. Bill has at one point he was like you know he had a set of twins with his wife. Then he became a wild man in the street. Start you know running around, moved out, blah blah blah, for about seven years. And he and Mitty, his girlfriend or his wife was his girlfriend in junior high. I think they were like, they were dating since they were in sixth grade and like, they're still married, but there was like that gap where he was just gone. But he can't, when he came back, they had another set of twins. So Bill has two sets of two sets of twins with Mitty and one, one son outside of his marriage. Um, okay. I, I can't think of his name. Uh, Link. Link is his other son. Okay. Anyway, then that gets to Ronnie. Ronnie is a musician. Ronnie used to sneak out of the house when he was like 14 or 13 and go play at, at different clubs around town. Okay. My, my mother spoke to me one time. He says, Ronnie's music teacher told me anytime he has a part, that he needs somebody to learn on a different instrument, he just hands it to Ronnie. And Ronnie in high school, I remember going to a concert and they, at the high school, and they, they did this song. And throughout the song, Ronnie would go from instrument to instrument, like he'd do a drum solo, then he'd do a sax solo, then he'd play a piece on the trombone, he'd play a part on the piano, then he'd play a part on the trumpet. He was just kind of this amazing guy. But Ronnie lives in Japan, and he's been there for about 45 years. Uh, he went there with a band when he was in L.A. and got to know some people, met his wife. They got married. They had three kids. Uh, one of them lives in Atlanta. One of them lives in Hawaii, one of them lives in Japan. Okay. And, uh, and, and his oldest daughter just passed away a few years back mm. from, from with his ex-girlfriend, Agnes. Agnes. Mm. Anyway, he's, he's okay. the girl that he left, left Albany and went out to L.A. with. Okay. Anyway, who's next? Roger. Roger, Roger was a was always sort of like, I think the word is enigma. Mm -hmm. You never knew what Roger was doing. He like, he was in and out of reform schools. He was a sort of like a, a almost a master thief, um, stealing cars and served as charismatic kind of guy. Always had a girlfriend. Uh, where Roger's like, Roger's sort of like me when it comes to not being around the family much. And then as Roger got older, he uh, 
he started having issues. I, I, I think Roger's dyslexic and just doesn't know it. And but in, anyway, Roger did a bunch of jobs till he discovered he could be a train engineer. And so for about 15 years, he was a train engineer. And and then he started having issues with his kidneys and he went on dialysis. So he re- retired. But uh, he's been waiting for a kidney for about six or seven years. Then finally, about a year ago, less than a year ago, he got one. So okay. he, said, he said to me the other day, I said, why don't you come over and have a drink with me? He says, I'm not drinking alcohol anymore. I'm trying I'm trying to make these kidneys last for 30 years. Yeah, good for him. So I'm like, so you want to live to be 95? And then he says, God willing. I'm like, there you go. <laughs> and then, so that's Roger. Roger, Roger has uh, four boys. Uh, one of them just passed away like a couple months ago. Oh, I guess he had, I know he had five boys. He had five boys. I forgot about Anthony. And late in life, he has a girl. So Roger has this daughter who's the love of his life that he loves to complain about, but he didn't do anything for her. Okay. And uh, that's Roger. And then there's Garland. Garland... When he was a kid, his big thing was he was a big baseball player. I remember he used to always win subs. There was this this, this sub place in Albany. And, you know, Albany to Rensselaer is like right across the bridge. And uh, so Garland, his thing was he played baseball. Used to win a lot of subs. He was also, he looked a little different than, than the rest of us. He looked more like our mother, and the rest of us looked more like our father. Gollum was always heavy, heavy, so he'd say, you know, he said, Mama used to buy, buy my pants by overestimating my size and buying my shirt by my age. So I'd be walking around pulling up my pants and pulling out the collar on my shirt because <laughs> my clothes never fit me. Mm-hmm. So when Garland, when Garland got older, he lost a lot of weight, became sort of stylish for a little while. He had a, a store called Mr. Big Stuff. He used to sell like, you know, it was like a, a clothing store. And he always drove cab. He drove cab until he got sick and couldn't drive anymore. Okay. And uh, but Garland was always my closest brother because we were closest in age. So he was the one with, like, when laying in bed at night, it's like, let's talk. He's like, what do you want to talk about? I'd say, girls. Like okay, what do you want to know about girls? Like he was three years older than me, and okay. he has this thing that he that he says. He says, "You know what? I don't really think that your mama's son talking to me." He says, "I don't really remember seeing you till you were three years old, standing in a doorway." <laughs> like that, he says, "That's the 
first memory I have of you. She says, I don't ever remember no crib being around the house. I don't, you know, I don't remember any babies or anything. I just remember one day seeing these three. I'm like, whatever, you know? (laughs) So that's, that's, that's our relationship. Garland, I Garland is the one I hang out with most. He comes over to the house. We sit around. We watch TV. Uh, I'll go see his band. He'll come see my band when we play. We don't play that much, though. But he plays at this place that's a a few blocks from where I live. So I go down and check him out sometime. And uh, that's Garland. Okay. And then, then there's me. You know about me. I'm here. And then there's Tony. It's my lawyer. Her name is Antonia. My mother, when she was a a kid, her and her friend had read that book, My Antonia. Okay. By, I think it's Willa Willa Cawther or Willa Cawther or whatever her name is. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said, when we have children, we're going to name our first daughters Antonia. And the woman, her friend, had her first daughter and named her Antonia. And then Marsha, my my mother had my sister Marsha, and she didn't name her Antonia. I guess she had forgotten or something. And then so her second daughter, after having five boys, she was like happy to have this other daughter and named her Antonia. Antonia May. May is her middle name is my father's mother who I told you was the prostitute well at some point they hooked up again and she came and lived with like when I was a baby came and lived with my mother and father so my mother named her second daughter after her Mama May wow but that that's that's my brothers and sisters Okay. And I was, I mean, other than hanging out with, you know, going to band practice when I was seven years old, eight years old with Curtis and David, because we were shine. I was a shoe shiner. We used to shine shoes on Broadway. We took our money and went down to George Department Store and bought some of those like little like ten dollar guitars, which was a lot of money for like an eight year old kid. And we would go out, go down in their basement, in the Trotty's basement, me, Curtis, and David. And um, and when I wasn't outside with them, I was hanging out with Stacey and Arthur and doing uh, uh, like lip syncing to songs like Joe Tex and Aretha Franklin. And then when I wasn't there, I was in my house listening to the radio. It was like around the British invasion. Okay. So I thought that I thought all white people sang with an accent. Okay. I didn't realize I didn't realize oh, that Britain was a place. Gotcha. <laughs> I just, just, I'm just hearing all these accents and like the Beatles and the Stones and the, you know, even the Monkees. You know, all all these, all of these singers were like, like I thought that's the way all white people sang. So, yeah. <laughs> except for like, um, except for like Tom Jones. Like, I didn't understand that. 
Okay. Time to by anyone. I'm like, he sounds like a big black man. What's up with that? <laughs> so <laughs> now, now with all this stuff, I mean like, you know, between the siblings, the friends and stuff like that, like, you know, what what do you remember about your dad, you know, from your childhood? Uh from my childhood, very little. I I remember I remember sitting with him. I, I just thought he was always kind of aloof. Like whatever the situation in, he he wasn't he wasn't ready to engage. Mm. Like I, I remember one time. I love telling the story. Watching, watch, sitting, watching the news with him. Actually, watching the news, sitting on the couch next to him. And a story came on about some leftist gorillas taking some people hostage somewhere. Okay. And I'm like, I'm totally messed up on I'm like, gorillas taking people, like actual gorillas taking people hostage. And I looked up at him for some like confirmation of like, this is weird, right? And he just sat there like just drinking his beer, watching TV. I'm like, this, this dude here, nothing gets to him. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't, like, I didn't understand. I didn't understand that they were saying gorillas were like gorilla warfare people. It was just, gotcha. I thought they were talking about real gorillas taking people hostage. But my father, I remember he he was kind of athletic. I remember him running, racing with my brother Bill on the street. And Bill, Bill was like in high school and he was, I thought, an old man. I remember them like running, like really fast next to one another. So I thought he was kind of athletic. Mm-hmm. He um, He always kind of music in in um in, on fifteen nineteen first street there was next to our stairs coming down in the hallway going to the kitchen mm-hmm. stacks of forty five and it's like I never really understood this like what's this forty five from but and he always you know that he had his favorite songs like um King of the Road, King of the Road. And I, you know what? In hindsight, I mean, I didn't think of it until just now, but the song King of the Road is basically describes my father. I okay. swear to God, I never thought, I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps. But I remember it was his, one of his favorite songs. And another one of his favorite songs is Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, da, 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 he's a clown. He's gonna get caught. Just you wait and see. Why is everybody always picking on That was, those are two of his favorite songs. Okay. But I swear to God, I'm gonna be thinking about that for the rest of the day because, like King of the Road, it's this guy just like moving from place to place. Mm-hmm. You know. And, now, was uh, he around much? You know, for for your childhood. No, he 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 left. I think by time I was nine. Okay. He he took his last trip to Arizona and stayed. And I remember he he came back 
for a couple days, one night when I was probably 10, maybe 11. Okay. I think, no, no, no. Yeah, so he must have left when I was about eight. Because I, I had to be 10 because I don't think I had had my, my kidney surgery yet. Okay. But um, I remember he was there and they were down the street at the butler's house that night. And it was just this other weird connection that I had to him that I, I stepped on this board that had a nail in it. And it went all the way through my foot. It was out in front of my house and my brother Darwin came out and he took it out and it was like bleeding and it was like round. Like, I remember thinking, like, this, because this nigga came back. That's why I stepped on it. But I guess I, you know, all my brothers and sisters were sort of like, well, he's gone, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I was always like, now he's coming back. I know he's going to come back, you know? Yeah. Cause I was, I was really young when he left and I'm like, like now he's just, he'll be back. He'll be back. And he just never came back. You know, we ended I ended up going in the hospital, having kidney surgery and, uh, I was in and out for like about six months because it got infected and okay. all kinds of issues. But then when I got out, we were no longer living in uh, Rensselaer. Okay. Uh, hold on, what else do I have about my father? Uh, we moved to Troy and uh, we were there. I had already started my wandering. I, I lived in in, in high, high school, like in junior high, I was big at the boys club. I, I was like, I always went to the boys club. And I got involved in writing plays at the boys club. I mm-hmm. learned how to smoke better. I, I, I got my WSI certificate and uh, that's water safety instructor certificate at the boys club. And I just, you know, I was, that was really a part of my life. Then I wanted to get in a band. And, okay. Uh, I traveling. I, you wanted to get into a band? Like 12. Okay. 12 years old. 12, 13. Yeah, 13 years old. Okay. And then I, I, I started going to different towns, just hanging out with kids, like mostly white kids, because like, I lived in the projects, and the only one that had an instrument was me. And everyone's like, yeah, well, when Jackson 5 came out, everyone's going to like be in a band. And <laughs> like, I, I, I bought a guitar, nobody else bought anything else. And I just never cared. So I started hanging out with white kids because they had instruments and stuff. I'm like, yeah, this is the place for me. Mm-hmm. And start singing rock and roll. And then I hung out in Melrose for a while. Then I hung out with Waterford. I mean, Interesting. So now, I start hanging out. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, you know, uh, obviously, you know, if your dad wasn't around and then you started getting into music, when when did he come back into the picture? Because I feel, I mean, he eventually came back, correct? Well, what it was, was um, when I was, I guess, I guess I must have been 12 when I went out to Arizona 
and went to a half a year of school there. And then when I was there for a couple of weeks, Garland came out and joined me. And we were kind of spending time with my father then. And I realized he was a big vodka drinker mm. and he was a sort of player, you know. He had a couple different girlfriends and stuff. But he couldn't deal with us, so we didn't. I don't think we lasted there even five months, six months. Then the next time was when I left Plattsburgh. I came and stayed in Albany for like a month. Then I packed up and went to Arizona. And I was, I don't know, I guess I was 19 then. I went to Arizona. Yeah, see, all these episodes in my lives were like six, eight months, you know, it wasn't like, you know, five years here. Mm. And then so I went there and I stayed with him for a little while. And I could see he really didn't want me there. So, you know, we hung up. There was one time we were sitting on the porch and I said, hey, Dad, where did the name Ennis come from? Mm-hmm. He said to me, uh, uh, I think one of your brother's middle names is Venice. I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> huh. And you know that's my middle name. Wow. So he, he yeah, he just like kind of jettisoned all, all connection to us as I remember him like we were sitting around probably watching a football game mm-hmm. with some friends of his. And him saying something like, yeah, I don't want a bunch of, uh, she probably has a whole bunch of kids running around. I don't want to be around that. But it was like, Jesus. So you, that's the way you are. Okay, cool. Now, and, uh, then time, so I, was he still married to, to your mom? Yeah, they, they never got divorced. Wow. Yeah. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I always thought that was kind of weird. I'm like, why'd you just divorce him and hook up somebody? You know, it's like, yeah, you're kind of this cute church woman, you know. You could hook up with somebody, you know, but she never did. Yes. Okay. Well, and then from, so from 19, you were in Arizona, and then, you know, obviously spending time with your dad, it didn't sound like he really cared, you know, to have you around that much. and. You know, so you know, what what did you think of of him as a dad overall? I, you know, what it was kind of hard for me to think of him as anything other than my flawed father. That's mm. that's all I, you know, like this this guy has issues, but he's like we're connected and there's really nothing I can do about it. So it's like, I didn't, I never really had any real hate for him. I never really had a distrust for him because I was never in a position where I needed his trust or anything or for me to trust him to do anything for me or with me. Um, so yeah, I mean, he was like, he was who he was. He was, you know, he, he thought he was a player. I remember, I remember talking to uh, Miss Billingsley. She's like the mother of friends of mine that I grew up with, who's like my mother and father's age, saying, 
Yeah, I remember when we used to sit out in the alleyway and, and your father would come out, he had a movie projector and he would he would we'd be watching movies up on the wall. She said, I thought we was doing it. And it's like so he was you know, he was always into that stuff. Like when like at one point, um when different bands would come up come through town, he would set them up with place to stay. He was like, you know, he he was just sort of like the way I turned out, sort of like me. Like huh. you know, he he was well known and popular among he was like in the, into the elks. He was big into the but not not the original elks. The elks are B P O E. The black elks are I B P O E, and the I stands for improve. Mm. But yeah, when he died, like like he ended up after after I came out there and stayed with him for a little while. My brother Garland came out after me and stayed, and Roger came out. So all three of us came out. We were like hanging out around him and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. Then when we all left, he he guess I guess he felt it was okay for him to go back. So when I was about twenty six or so, mm-hmm. um, he moved back to Albany. Okay. And yeah, and it was sort of this weird situation because like my brothers and sisters were like tired of him. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I wasn't really around. I was p- playing in Lake George at that time and, mm-hmm. you know, doing the whole band thing. And, uh, things, you know, Gene and all of that happened. Okay. And I'm not, not calling you all of that. I'm just my, my whole time there. Next time on Complicated Fatherhood. Lake George, we start playing some like local gigs, partied, you know, did a lot of drugs. I kind of felt like I was even, I was by myself. You know, what was your initial reaction? Like I already had like two kids and I said, well, maybe I can make this one work. Complicated Fatherhood was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ryan Rucker. All music was composed and recorded by me as well. Join us for the conversation on Instagram at Complicated Fatherhood. And if you like what you hear, I'd love for you to share this podcast on any of your favorite social media platforms using the hashtag Complicated Fatherhood. We'll see you next time.